So Andrew kindly asked me, so what are you thinking about Sunday? And uh, I've been swimming around in 1 Peter for a few months. So I thought, oh, 1 Peter sounds good to me. And, and then he, he asked, you got a title? I never think about titles. So uh, I had to come up with something. And it looks kind of dumb and dopey, but I think it fits. And it's, it's uh, Peter, give me one good reason why I should hang in there with my faith when life is really rough. Give me one good reason. And I can just picture in 2022, because I'm kind of surrounded by folks at this moment who are in that space, uh, just a little tiny bit, I won't talk too much about it, but I, I'm in prison um, quite often. And I'm also, I spend a lot of time in coffee shop ministry on the Lakeshore Boulevard West in two different coffee shops. So people just walk in off the street and join us for, they don't even realize it's church. Um, but it is church. Um, but you meet a lot of folks who are just at different spaces, different places. And so what I'm sharing right now are just things I've heard. Why shouldn't I pack it in? Why shouldn't I just write faith off as a learning experience? Why shouldn't I just take a break from it all? Why shouldn't I join the majority of people, even, look out, church people at times, who tone it down a notch when it comes to the things of God? Why shouldn't I, Peter? I mean, this narrow road is really hard. And this narrow road can be very lonely and very challenging at times. And this narrow road can feel isolating. And this narrow road is costly. So Peter, I can picture this going back to the first century. Peter, I'm going to give you the microphone now as to why I shouldn't call it a day when it comes to discipleship. And it's not that I don't believe, Peter, don't get me wrong. I still believe. I just feel I'm missing out sometimes. And I'm finding myself more and more marginalized by the culture, Peter. You understand, right, Peter? So, Peter, do you have a word for me? Or should I change course? And I can imagine Peter replying, I'm really glad you asked. I'm really glad you asked. That's what his first letter really is about. Being asked that type of question. Because 2,000 years back, a gent that we are blessed to be very familiar with, Peter, wrote an open letter to a large group of people who were really going through it. And because of their circumstances in the Roman Empire, they had more questions then at times they had answers. Identifying with Jesus was proving to be quite costly, to say the least, and difficult. And some of them, as you can see in this letter, were actually wrestling with the decision they'd made to make Jesus the center of their lives. And what they were discovering, simply put, was this. Following Jesus is not always the best way to win a popularity contest. They were discovering it wasn't a pleasant pastime. It wasn't a hobby. It wasn't by the way. 
It wasn't belonging to like a club. It wasn't an optional distraction from all the demands of life. For many people, it wasn't about popularity, but it was about persecution. It wasn't about comfort, but it was about a cross. It wasn't a hundred yard dash, it was a marathon. Were they up for this? Or would they rather run with the crowd? And Peter, he knew what they were going through, 64 AD. He'd been there, he'd done that, and he would do it again, even to the point of actually giving his own life, you know this. And there was no question in his mind that it was worth it. All kinds of little choruses come to mind. Lord, you are more precious than silver. Lord, you are more costly than gold. Lord, you are more beautiful than diamonds. And nothing I desire compares with you. Or the psalmist, one thing of I desire the Lord, that will I seek after that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Above everything else, I can hear the likes of a George Beverly Shea singing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Peter could sympathize, yes, with those who were the recipients of this letter, but his intention of the letter is not about writing a sympathy card. The intention of his letter, I'm just going to kind of give you a little uh, neat thing at the very end of his letter. This is what he says. I have written and sent this short letter to you. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and to assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Peter, why did you write this letter? Not to say, oh, I'm really sorry life is so hard. It is so hard but to encourage you, to pray you have strength, have some kind of insight into the dimensions, the height, the breadth, the length, the width of God's amazing love for you in the most difficult of times. And Peter will never sugarcoat the suffering aspect. Never. Jesus never sugarcoated the suffering aspect. If anyone will come after me, he says, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. What will it profit to gain the whole world? and lose your own soul? What can you give in exchange for your soul? He never sugarcoats the cost. But like Paul, when he writes his letters, sometimes we're going to see in a moment, Peter gets lost in wonder, love, and praise as he just gets overwhelmed with a love that will not let him go and will not let him down, even in the darkest of times. So when Peter dictates his letter, As I mentioned a moment ago, there were dark clouds of persecution and they'd broken out all over Asia Minor upon believers and beyond. The heat was on. And just as you and I need encouragement in our faith from time to time, is that right? I need encouragement in my faith. I need a Barnabas once in a while to come alongside me. Peter knew these men and these women who'd been scattered over such a vast area They needed assurance. And what better way than to put his thoughts on paper with the help of a gentleman by the name of Silas. He makes reference to him at the end of this chapter, this book as well, who did all the writing for Peter. 
Silas, who had accompanied Paul as, on the missionary journeys. Silas, who had experienced his own suffering because of persecution. Gave Peter the much editorial help. Every believer on the receiving end of this letter knew about Peter. He didn't need any introduction at all. His story was out there. He knew what fear was like. He knew what discouragement was like. At one point, you know it, in his own life, when Jesus was facing that kangaroo court, Peter denied he even knew Jesus. He knew about what it's like. He'd hidden with his colleagues in the upper room behind closed doors after the death of Jesus for fear of the Jews. Later on, he'd even compromised his convictions choosing to be popular with the Jewish believers at the expense of Gentile believers feeling welcomed, and Paul took him up on that one. Yet with all of his failings, we can relate because we have failings. He knew about, again, a love that would not let him down and would not let him go. And all he wanted for these sisters and brothers, the ones receiving this letter, was to be equally assured of that very same love in their own circumstances. As far as Jesus is concerned, you were saved when he gave his life for you on the cross. And as far as the Holy Spirit here is concerned, you were saved when you heard the good news in such a way that it made sense to you. And you made a conscious decision because of the ever-kindness and presence and power of the Holy Spirit to welcome Christ into your life. And that's when it all came together. But it took all three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to bring you to a place of salvation. I think that's wonderful. Do you agree? Verse 2 kind of blesses the socks right off of me as I try to just get my mind around that. And something else here of great importance. Peter does not minimize our role in God's plan to save people. The gospel had been preached to these people, they heard it, and they believed. Verse 12, now this good news has been announced to you by those who preach in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happening. The word of God was preached to you. Peter's own example at Pentecost, kind of wonderful proof that we don't just say, well, I hope things work out for all those folks. I hope somehow they hear about it. No. It involves us in partnership with our Lord. The bottom line, the same God who ordains the end, namely our salvation, is the same God who ordains the means to the end, namely the sharing or preaching of the good news. A faith worth having is a faith worth sharing. Yes, a personal faith, but never a private faith. A huge difference. Huge difference. So look at the oomph here again concerning the big question. When Peter launches this letter, he does it with these words. He's saying to these people who are struggling and wrestling and really going through it, he's saying to them, I want you to know that you are the most privileged people on the planet. I'm writing to God's chosen people. 
You may not feel privileged. You might feel beat up and dragged out and looked down upon, but you are the most privileged people on the planet, Peter is saying. You don't fit in the world very well. But there's a transformation that's taking place in you that is far more attractive and far more meaningful than anything can be compared to the pressures and the fickleness and the changing values of a world. Now, the world might have looked at these people and said, you are poor, as many of them were. Many were slaves. You are despised. You are not wanted here. You are just taking up space. Do us all a favor and leave. But Peter is saying to these people, no, you are rich because of what Christ has done for you. You are loved beyond measure. You belong to a universal family of sisters and brothers all around the throne of God. You have every right to be here. The world needs you to be here. The greatest gift we can give to the world is to live faithfully in the world for Christ. Look how Peter says it in verse 3. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we've been born again, because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great expectation. We have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure, undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. You see the enthusiasm of Peter that I made reference to right from the very start. He just starts giving praise to God because he's excited about what he's about to say. Even before he says it, he's excited about it. It overwhelms him. And he prays that it will overwhelm the believers in the same way. In his great mercy, he has given you new birth. What he's saying here is life is far more than what it seems to be, what seems to be immediately apparent right now. Life is far more than the pain of present circumstances. Peter's reminding these people of a spiritual wealth that cannot be measured and of an identity that no one can take away from them. He says, you have been born again, a new birth. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Except a person be born again, they can't inherit the kingdom of God. You have been born again. And why was it so important for Peter to emphasize right from the start to these struggling believers that they had been born again? They knew it in their head. Why was he saying it to them? Because many of them were being made to feel like they did not matter by those who were closest to them, expendable even by their own families, because they turned away from their pagan faith and had turned to Christ. Moms and dads, grandparents weren't happy with this at all. They were also considered bad for the community overall because they wouldn't participate in the worship of Roman gods and all the related ceremonies regarding Caesar. To make it more extreme, they wouldn't engage in emperor worship. So they were deemed unpatriotic at best. Talk about getting marginalized. They just didn't fit. And so Peter begins by saying to them, you actually do fit because you belong to a family, a family in heaven. 
The world is not your home in that, in that way. Don't put your tent pegs down too deep. You're just passing through. We sing about it. We've sung about it for decades. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Joined to earth with Jesus as we travel the sod. I'm a part of the family. The family of God. I don't care what church you belong to, just as long as for Calvary you stand. If your soul's been washed in the fountain, you're my brother. Give me your hand. Something much bigger. Something much more meaningful. The Spirit of God living in them. I'll just share a little personal note. Sometimes this is only stuck in my head and it misses my heart in the day by day. But once in a while, by God's kindness, it hits my heart again. And I find myself walking through a mall or even, as I mentioned, into the prisons. And it just hits me, Bruce, the Spirit of God lives in you. The Spirit of God lives in you. When you just let that sink in, the Spirit of God lives in you. And when you just begin to kind of put your big toe in that massive, massive ocean, even just your big toe is enough to overwhelm you. The Spirit of God lives in and it impacts how you see everybody else. How you treat everybody else. How you see the world. Why you get out of bed in the morning. What you can anticipate this day. I'm not doing this a day alone. I'm not doing life alone. The Spirit of God lives in you. That's what Peter's trying to get through to these folks when he mentions a new birth. And then he, secondly, he mentions, as if that were not enough, he mentions this living hope in verse 4, this priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. A living hope. Someone said wisely again that a faith worth living for is a faith worth dying for. It was Jim Elliot who said years ago, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. These people were facing the prospect of persecution and death because of their faith. And how important it was to remind these people that they had received a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. They needed to know, we need to know, I need to know, that they are to be completely confident in sharing in the undying life of Jesus. Again, just a quick personal note. I've been kicking around for a while. So it's 46 years in something called ministry, whatever that means. And I've, I've, said, I've said goodbye to an awful lot of people. And some of them were very young, teenagers. And some of them were getting up there. And I've seen a lot of reasons to grieve um, in my own family as well regarding that. Many of us can really. But what strikes me is the difference a real, legitimate, living hope makes. Living hope changes everything when we encounter death. And it might seem absolutely insane to those who have yet to 
relate to Jesus. But some funerals I've been to, and maybe you had the very same experience, have actually been genuine celebrations of life. Dan and I knew one guy named Dave. I miss him like crazy. I loved working with Dave. He was totally involved in prison ministry and street chaplaincy. Planted a work right in the red light area in Abbotsford. And when Dave died, my heart just went all over the place, died suddenly. But the funeral was, they called it, you are invited to Dave's party. And we all went to Dave's party, and there was a barbecue. And there was a beer table. And there was lots of singing. And we were all given rocks to paint on, a word that reminded us of Dave. And we just rejoiced as we cried. But we rejoiced because we knew Dave. We could, we, it wasn't difficult just to picture Dave in the arms of his Savior. And again, it gave us a real longing for that day when we can join him in the arms of our Savior. And his wife, Debbie, emceed the whole thing. She knew that a party was the way to go. Yes, there were tears. Yes, we still miss them. But the joy was legit. It couldn't be contained. Many more people come to your mind, too, I'm sure, as well, because it's about this living hope. Not a cross-your-fingers hope, but a guaranteed, no-doubt-about-it hope. So Peter's saying to these folks who are struggling, you know the Spirit of God lives in you. You're not doing life alone, no matter how difficult it is. You know that at the end, there's a best before date on being here right now. There's something great on the horizon, and it's, it's, it's certain. And then he goes on to talk about this inheritance that can never perish in verses 4 to 9, never spoil, never fade, actually being kept for the believer and will be the experience of the believer, he says, after a little while. And the icing on the cake, which really gets me thinking, like, what does this even mean? These trials, verse 7, will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong, not if your faith, when your faith, Peter was confident they would hang in there. When your faith remains strong through many trials, it, look out, will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Okay, I'm trying to put myself in the sandals of somebody getting this letter, and things are starting to change. My perspective is starting to change. No matter how difficult it's been, no matter how abandoned I feel, no matter what I'm facing, no matter the cruelty, no matter what prison looks like, no matter what suffering looks like, things are starting to change. And then Peter goes on to say these amazing words in verse 8 and 9. You love him, speaking of Jesus, even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. You rejoice with the glorious, inexpressible joy, the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. What I notice here right away is something we have in common with the people who got this letter. I meet people who say to me, well, if I'd been around when Jesus was here, it'd be a whole lot easier to believe. If I could only see Jesus, it'd be a whole lot easier to believe. These people have never seen Jesus either. They've never seen Jesus. 
and yet they believed. They're in the very same boat we are on today. We haven't seen Jesus either. Though they had not seen him, they loved him. Isn't that wonderful? And not only that, even though God had not delivered them from difficulties and from their enemies, they still loved him. How do you not admire that? And over time, I find anyway, the visible world becomes less important as we begin to appreciate how very temporary circumstances can be. And this is something Peter's recipients of this letter learned firsthand. They probably were beginning to understand why Jesus said, Thomas, you believe me because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe me but haven't seen me. You've got this new birth, the Holy Spirit of God's living in you. You've got this living hope, guaranteed. There's going to be this amazing day. And just thinking about that should change everything for this for today. You've got this amazing, mind-boggling inheritance that I'm struggling to find the words even now to, to get a hold of. And then he goes on to say to these people, as if they needed more, verse 10, this salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterwards. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And he goes on in verse 17 and 18. He says these, these words. Maybe they're on the screen there. Verse 18. You know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now he has revealed him to you in these last days. All kinds of stuff comes to my mind. But the prophets, they, they had only caught a glimpse into the plan of God. But only a glimpse. None of them had a firm grasp on what and how the Lord would rescue men and women and deliver them to safety. But even us on this side of the cross, We'll never get our minds around all that God has done for us or why God has done this for us or how God did this for us, how deep the Father's love for us so vast beyond all measure. Sometimes it causes me to tremble, right? Tremble. Tremble. I remember sitting down in prison with a guy and, uh, years ago now, and uh, he, he woke up, and name was Jack. I might have talked about Jack before. But Jack woke up in the St. John County Jail, not knowing why he was in the St. John County Jail. <laughs> and so he asked the guard, what am I doing here? And the answer was, you killed a man last night. And you almost killed the girl he was with. Well, the girl he was with was his girlfriend, Jack's girlfriend. That's why he killed the man. But he was so out of his mind, drunk, when it happened, he had no recollection of doing it. So began to meet with Jack regularly every Wednesday, actually, every Wednesday morning. And just getting to know Jack and hear Jack and try to communicate to Jack about how much Jesus loves him. And then one Wednesday morning, Jack just came in and said, Bruce, I don't want you to come and see me anymore. 
And I thought, oh, I'm the worst chaplain on the planet. What have I, how did I mess this up? I'm thinking, what did I do? To, but he saw me struggling, trying to figure out. He said, no, I don't want you to come and see me anymore. I'm not worth your time. And the words came out right away, what we just read. Jack, you are worth the very blood of Christ. Because, Jack, when Jesus went to the cross, he went for you. And, Jack, Jesus lives for you. And, Jack, Jesus wants to do life with you. Now, not later, I know, here in this prison. And the wonderful thing, which I'll never forget, I hope I never forget, is being at his court hearing. Sure enough, 25 years, no parole, I get it. Handcuffed, coming down the aisle to go off into the wagon and taken off to Dorchester Penitentiary. And he sees me looking like I've been baptized in lemonade. And he, with his hands handcuffed, he slaps my face. And he says, Bruce, cheer up, I'm free. I'm free. And the P.S. to that story, which almost sounds like I'm making it up, but I'm not making it up, is Jack became the assistant chaplain at Dorchester Penitentiary under the leadership of Pierre Allard, who was the chaplain at the time, became chaplain general later on. The assistant chaplain, all serving 25 years. Why? Because he knew the blood of Christ had rescued him. So even in a prison, a, door, a penitentiary, not a chance of even being looked at getting out in 25 years, not a hope of getting out. He was the freest guy in that place. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And just the last little bit. Peter, I'm, I'm getting Peter's message here, that's for sure, about why things don't have to look as bleak as they may feel at times. You know God paid that ransom, verse 18, to save you from the empty life you inherited. The ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now he's revealed him to you in these last days. And verse 21, through Christ, you have come to trust in God. And you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Deep, mysterious, but marvelous about the gospel. Even as a little child could understand, God, me, the idea nothing in between, wouldn't that be nice? Not true. All kinds of stuff in between. <laughs> if this was even just beginning to all the reasons why I don't qualify, if this was even the beginning of all the sin that I've committed, the way I've done life, thought life, shed life, messed up with life. This book isn't nearly big enough. There's something horrible in between, between me and God. Along comes Jesus, nothing in between. Along comes Jesus on the cross. What does Jesus do on the cross? That's what Jesus does on the cross. Takes all of the stuff that was in between getting in the way of the sin that would stop me from ever even dreaming about having a relationship with a living God and taking it all upon himself so I could be free. So jacks, the jacks of this world could be free. So those folks living in those Roman provinces could be free under the horrible persecution of the Roman Empire. Free to live a life that brings glory to God. Free of all the stuff that would try to pull them down and tear them apart. Free of it all. Isn't that amazing? So Peter is saying to these people, get your mind around this. It's so profound. It's so amazing. What sacrifice? Yes, it's disturbing because there's nothing you did to deserve it, nothing you can do to deserve it, and yet so comforting. 
because it's a healing embrace that God wants to wrap his arms around you. It's strengthening and it's empowering and it's liberating. One that gives you what gives me the oomph to keep on keeping on, no matter how dark, no matter how difficult, no matter how challenging life can be, to be secure and have, find significance in Jesus every day. So we can find ourselves identifying at times with these early believers when life is rough. I have friends right now for whom life is really rough. Maybe that's why this is on my mind so much. When it's hard to see a way forward, when it's clear they're greatly outnumbered and feeling in the minority, when it comes to matters of justice and righteousness and faith, we never go looking for persecution. Persecution has a way of finding us if you're living faithfully. But there are always times to take a stand ever so kindly and gently, but also so clearly, and the stand you take may not be a popular one. Following Jesus really is costly, and I'm convinced it's going to be all the more costly in the years ahead for those who truly want to be faithful to Jesus. It would be easier, easier to cave, easier to water down your convictions, easier to blend in, Easier to go with the flow, and many have. Many of my friends have. And many more will. Even some in church leadership will and have. But there's something about that road less traveled, about that narrow road that Jesus talks about. I mean, Paul reminds Timothy, he says, there's coming a time when people won't listen to sound teaching, and they're going to follow their own desires. And they'll look for teachers who will just tell them what they want to hear. And they'll choose to reject the truth for a myth. No wonder Paul would make reference to a guy by the name of Alexander, who did him, to quote Paul, much harm and fought against everything Paul had taught. And Paul would speak also about another gent whose name was Demas, who deserted Paul because he loved the things of this life more than the one who gave him life. And Paul would share his own experience of being completely abandoned by others in the face of persecution. And he would tell young Timothy, all those who determine to live a faithful life for Jesus will suffer some kind of persecution. And that's what Peter's saying too. He's saying, this is no, this is no surprise. This is actually evidence that you really are walking with God. Some through the fire, some through the blood. Some through the waters, but all through the blood. Some through great sorrow, but God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. And it sounds crazy, but here's Peter saying, I'm so glad you asked the question. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't pack her in, Peter. The Spirit of God is living in you. You have a living hope. You have an amazing inheritance that you can't begin to get your mind around. You've been rescued. Jesus has given his very life for you. And as a result, if I read a little bit further, your response to that is to live a life that is marked by love for one another. A love that can actually flow genuinely because you are so confident in the living word of God, 
That will never change. So it sounds crazy to all those who have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Joy, even with tears, even with a broken heart at times, joy, even when you're lonely, even when you're hurting, joy, peace, yes. Ours is a confident hope that gives us the encouragement to keep on, secure in him, knowing our lives have significance, that we share in the mission of bringing the gospel of grace healing, and peace into a world that so desperately needs hope the way Anne began our service this morning. Andre Crouch sang a little song. Somebody told me of the joy they had. Somebody told me that in sorrow they could be glad. Somebody told me they were bound but now set free. But I didn't think it could be till it happened to me. We pray together. Father, I thank you for sisters and brothers here. And I thank you that we can sit at the feet of Jesus and just let the truth of it all sink in. And I would pray for anyone this afternoon who has been struggling, who is struggling, who is wondering whether or not to keep on keeping on. And I would really pray that the truths we read this, this afternoon from 1 Peter will find a home in our heart and will sink in deep. Lord Jesus, we want to be the people you're calling us to be. We want to be the very best we can be for you. And considering all you have done for us, you gave your life for us. We want to live our lives for you. May it be so. For the glory of your name, amen.